But I, I want you to think about metaphorical themes that run through the Old Testament. One of the reasons I love it is I see all those themes going through, themes that I've ne- I, some of which I've never heard anybody talk about. <clears throat> you could write a book on the uses of water, the metaphorical uses of water, the real uses of water. Water as dangerous in a flood, water as absolutely necessary in a drought situation, seven years without it. We've got water coming up to water the garden. We have the garden planted between two rivers. We have a flood. We have water turned into blood. We have to cross a sea. We have to cross rivers. We have seven years of drought. All of those actual and metaphorical our need for the living water that we see in the New Testament. Uh, the theme, theme of barren women, there are several instances of barren women, even in the New Testament. Barren women, and what comes from the miracle when the barren woman bears a child, the nation is blessed, the world is blessed, uh, the, the family is blessed. We see that in a number, and bare bones, bare bones that predict something that is good that is coming. They're going to get up and rise. They're going to walk again. Uh, the, the journey theme, uh, a journey that uh, Abraham keeps making here and there, getting himself in trouble, getting his wife in trouble. The journey down to Egypt, the journey away from Egypt, the journey to captivity, the journey back from captivity. And then in the New Testament, Jesus is always on his way to Jerusalem. He's making a journey as well. Uh, the, tri- the twist in the rule of primogeniture. You know, there was a rule. The, the oldest got whatever it was. Well, that's not what happens in the, in the Old Testament. Ishmael doesn't get it. Isaac gets it. Esau doesn't get it. Jacob gets it. Reuben doesn't get it. Not even Joseph gets it. Judah, the ignoble Judah, gets it. And he is in the line in the gene- genealogy of Jesus. I, I, I just keep wondering if somebody doesn't see that and preaches a sermon on why Jesus is called the firstborn. Uh, because the firstborn didn't make it in the Old Testament, but he makes it in the New Testament. <clears throat> uh, then the suffering, the theme of the suffering servant. There are books on that. Uh, Joseph is a suffering servant whom God allows to suffer on behalf of his family, on behalf of the nation that's going to come out of that family. Daniel is a suffering servant for very much the same reason. Israel itself is the suffering servant in Isaiah. And then toward the end of Isaiah, the prediction is that one to come is going to suffer for all. Uh, Well, so much for the big themes that are metaphorical. I want to get now to the poetry. Why so much poetry? There are lots of reasons, and you may be able to think some off the top of your head. Uh, one reason is it's a lot older than prose. Prose is relatively new. Poetry is very, very old. And there's a, can you imagine the reason for that? 
Let's say you cannot read and write. You, you, uh, you've never learned, but somebody in the family knows uh, the first chapter of Genesis. He knows that by heart. I see that as a poem that is transferred orally to people and generations. It's all the, all the repetition, all the, uh, well, the repetition of, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it is good, it is good, it is good. I need Gail Shrigley in here. I saw her write on the board one time the three uh, major, you know, uh, creation acts of light and dark and so forth, and paired that with the filling out, the fleshing out in those next three acts so that kids could remember them. And they can remember them when they see them in threes. The rule of three works in poetry. Uh, so I think of it as a poem that was passed down from family to family to family. And a poem with the great overarching theme, God did it. All of this, God did it. And he liked what he did. It was good. And he made you, and you were extra good. And that he affirms the universe, and he affirms humanity. He affirms you. Uh, poetry is easier to remember. It's usually more from the heart. <laughs> That's a metaphor. It doesn't come from the heart. It comes from somewhere else in here. Poetry comes from what we metaphorically call the heart. It speaks to our emotions. It speaks to our sadness, to our despair. It speaks to our hope, to our uh, anger. There are poems for all of those. And I think Chris said in the morning sermon, he said that. There are all those laments that you can read that will, will speak to you. Most of those poems will be, begin with, with something like, where are you, God? I can't find you, God. And, you know, I'm mad at you, God. They almost always end with, I praise you, Lord. I give you praises, except for one. 88 does not end that way. 88 ends in the line that, oh, I never can remember their names. Uh, the two singers sing, Hello, darkness, my old friend. Yes. <laughs> I think that's Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> uh, the 88th one, which is just filled with sadness and can't understand what's happening. Why don't I get better? Why isn't this situation better? And there is no ending in which, in which the poet says, I praise you, God the way there are in the other laments. It ends with, darkness is my only friend. Uh, another reason is that poems are compressed. They are squeezed together, compact. They can say more in 10 words than prose can say in 10 words. Uh, trying to think of a good example here. Uh, well, I always think of the Grand Canyon visit. When I first walked out and saw the, the Grand Canyon, the tears started rolling. 
when I was on top of the Alps, I looked out and the tears started rolling. And I didn't have, you know, I, I, I couldn't think what to say. Uh, but a, a poem came to my mind. A psalm came to my mind. And the words, the heavens declare the glory of God, firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. And so we sing it too. Uh, they may have sung it, we sing it too. It's, it says in a few words, everything I'm feeling, everything I want to shout, and I don't know what to say. And awesome doesn't cut it anymore. <laughs> Amazing doesn't cut it anymore. It's, it's, the words don't do it. I have to have something that a poet can say better for me than I can say myself. Poetry expresses the inexpressible. Things you cannot utter, it can utter. Uh, if you want to read the psalm, what is it, 51, with all the, I'm so sorry I did that, my guilt is ever before me, all those 13 times I think he expresses his guilt, how bad he feels, and what he wants God to do for him. Uh, that psalm can express your guilt if that's what you're feeling. Uh, the kind of metaphor I'm talking about, if, if you are having a, a sense of despair, you can feel good about what Jeremiah is going to say for you. Jeremiah yells out at God, you're like a stream that's run dry. That's a pretty good metaphor. I, I get it. You get that picture. You're like a stream that's run dry on me. Uh, and there are such complaints like that in the Psalms as well. Blot out my iniquity. You know, it's, I've got, you've got it written in clay. Let's scrape it out. Let's scrape it off. Let's rub it out. It's written on a scroll. Let's blot the ink. It's written on stone. Let's, let's scratch it out of the stone. Blot out my iniquity. That metaphor says it I, so that you don't ever see it again. <clears throat> and then let's say you've had a time of renewal. You had, it was all good for you, and then the bottom fell out, and then you are brought back, and you want to express your joy in having been brought back, and we sing the song that is actually one of the psalms. We sing, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, the anger of the enemy would have swallowed us alive. The waters would have engulfed me. I would have surely died had it not been the Lord who was on our side. The snare is broken. I have escaped. I'm out of that trap. I'm not caught there anymore. That kind of language says what I can't say. I want to say it, but I can't say it, and the psalm helps me. Um... Have any of you been to the United Nations building or seen the United Nations building? Do you remember what is carved on the wall? Anybody remember what's carved on the wall of the United Nations building? It doesn't say, we work for world peace. That's not what it says. 
says, they will beat their, plow, their swords into plowshares. They will beat their swords into pruning hooks. They will study war no more. Big letters. It's called the Isaiah Wall. It's worth seeing. It takes, you know, I cry at everything. It made me cry. <laughs> and the Russians in the late 50s sent over a statue of a very mighty looking soldier beating his sword into a plowshare. And that stands on the outside of the United Nations building. But that says it better than we want world peace, or as the pageant winner says, uh, I, I want world peace. <laughs> I would prefer, she said, we will beat our swords and we'll beat our crowns into plowshares. <laughs> we study war no more. Um, the Bible is filled with, bit, with uh, metaphors that you use all the time and you don't even know it. Drop in the bucket. Eye for an eye. The skin of your teeth. Bite the dust. Fly in the ointment. The powers that be. A good Samaritan. People who've never read the Bible who couldn't tell you the story of the good Samaritan if they had to know what a good Samaritan is. Sign of the times. Do you know that was in there? Straight and narrow. You knew that was in there because your preacher told you that. Uh, scapegoat. Rise and shine. <laughs> You've heard that? Put words in my mouth. Wits end. Those are straight from the Old Testament. There are 37 easily citable <laughs> metaphors like that that we use and don't re always remember where they came from. It's not a good idea to, to stick with ordinary metaphors when you're writing for an English teacher because she will circle it and say, cliché. <laughs> you know, you write, uh, I'm trying to think of, a, of one that I used to hear all the time, and I would have to circle it and say, trite, uh, overused, cliché, let's pick a fresh metaphor, you can come up with one. <clears throat> one of the beauties of the Psalms is it is translatable into any language. All poetry cannot be translated from one language to another. Hamlet would not be good in Italian. The ends of Shakespearean lines are Germanic sounding. Um, they don't end in vowels. If you translate Hamlet into Spanish and Italian, everything ends with, every line ends with an A or an E or an I. Uh, it, does, it doesn't sound like Shakespeare. Dante wrote in triplets all of those A's and A's and O's. These three all rhymed. These three all, you can't do, you can't translate that into English. You just have to decide we're not going to make the divine comedy rhyme. It's too hard in English. It doesn't work in our language. But the, there is something about the psalm that is translatable. Uh, and that's, the, it's, it's not, there is meter to Hebrew, but uh, what really is significant about the psalms 
is the structure. Line one, the heavens declare the glory of God. Line two, the firmament. We've gone from heavens to firmament. Shows its handiwork. So he's, he's complementing the first sentence with the second sentence. It's somewhat different. Uh, some of the Psalms, the third sentence, the third line will even be a complement or a continuation of lines one and two. Maybe a complete contrast. This one may disagree with this one in some way, or at least be different in some way. <clears throat> and you can do that in any language. You could do that in Chinese. You could do that in Japanese. The statement being completed or followed by another statement, being completed or followed by another statement. You can do that in any language. Um, I love things that expand and enhance my appreciation of God and enlarge my biblical understanding. I want to see how my time goes here. Uh, I was given a book called Virgil Wander by my daughter at Christmas, and I'd never heard of it. I'd heard of the writer, but I hadn't heard of it. And uh, I was reading. The, she, Leslie said, I told her about you. I told the woman in the bookstore about you. She said, oh, she'll like this. And I thought, i never heard of this book. Virgil Wander, what a name. And I read it, and I did like it. I like the words. I, I love the way he put sentences together. I love the word choices, all this stuff. I thought, oh, I, I. and I'm riding along in the car. It doesn't take a radio or a phone to distract me and cause wreck. <laughs> I'm thinking of stuff that make, you know, I haven't had a wreck yet, but I have scared some people to death. <laughs> I'm riding along in the book, in the car, and I'm thinking, that book begins with a man going off the road and sliding into a frozen lake, and he's upside down. They discover him in the freezing water. They drag him out. Takes him a month to get him to recover. When he comes out, things don't look the same. Everything's different. He has writing a long thing about that. That's a baptism. That is a baptism. He is a changed man after that experience. The writer is doing that in metaphorical language. It is a baptism. And so I began to think about the rest of the book, and I began to see all the changes that had occurred in that man's life. He finds a father. He, he becomes father to somebody else. He hadn't cared that much about people. He changes after that experience. Uh, I like to look at things like that. I like to find things that make me think about God in different ways, that sort of expand my understanding of God. Here's one of my favorite things. I don't know how well you can see this. Shh, don't tell. Do you know what it is? <laughs> What's this? A rose window. Does anybody know where it is? Did you ever see it? It's York Minster. York Minster rose window. What window is this? I, I have put in a ringer. I've got Jerry in there. What window is this? Ah, Jerry, they don't know. You know. Yeah, don't, don't tell. 
brought him in here for one purpose. He needs to say it. <laughs> okay, what is this beautiful window? I'm going to yield to Leland. <laughs> well, if you yield, I'm going to let him do it. Sure. It's looking down the long axis of the double helix of DNA. That's in you. That's the artistic beauty of the way you were made. That's the DNA. You have that in you. You are fearfully, wonderfully made in ways you didn't even know, right? Look at the beauty of that. It looks like a rose window. Doesn't that take your breath away? Doesn't science suddenly give you a new, enriched, wonderful understanding and appreciation of God in that? Don't get in an argument that science and religion are in conflict. That is not true. They are not. Science reveals things like that. And the man who worked on that for 15 years became a Christian after he worked on it. He had been an agnostic. And Dr. Young become, Collins becomes a Christian as a result of that. I love that picture. Okay. Now hang loose because I'm going to scare some of you. <laughs> Is that okay? Uh, in English, words change meaning. You know? uh, Sue wouldn't mind in Charles Dickens' day being called Mistress Bonner, right? But she would prefer that you not call her a mistress in 2019. <laughs> that word has changed. Uh, anybody in here have on flip-flops? You know what a flip... You have some flip-flops? <laughs> can you see the flip? <laughs> When I was a little girl, that was not called a flip-flop. You can imagine the trouble I got to, into a few years ago when I said, I never could wear thongs. <laughs> I didn't know why everybody was laughing. I, they said, they hurt my feet. And then, then they explained. Okay, I'm going to tell you a word which has changed meaning. Hang loose. Don't get nervous. That word has changed meaning over the years. The word myth. Today, myth, I'm not listening. The day... Today, myth means all of this to somebody. I mean, that's not really true. George Washington really did not cut the hand or whatever. That's just a myth. That's a fiction. That's not the original religious meaning of that word. Does anyone know what the real meaning of that word is? It's a story. I don't know what kind of story. It's a story about God and humanity or in other cultures, gods and humanity. It's a story of ultimate reality. What is really real in this world? 
the story has come up to talk about what is really real in this world. And so I want you with me. I could say, uh, if a photographer was in here, I would say, uh, don't take a picture of me straight on. Take a picture of this side. <laughs> and he said, I don't want to see that side. I don't want to see the other side. Oh, okay, take a picture of this side. Uh, what about this side? He says, no way. <laughs> I don't want to see that. There are many facets to lots of things. I wanted to bring in a vase that had one design on one side and a design on the other side, and then I remembered I gave it to the silent auction and Robin Bateman has it at her house. <laughs> but I want you to think of the creations, I want you to think of the Adam and Eve story in terms of myth and, and uh, metaphor. The Adam and Eve story is my story. The Adam and Eve story is your story. I was born in paradise. And many of you were too. Now there are children in the world who are not, but I was born in paradise. I could ride my tricycle anywhere around the block in the shade of the biggest, best trees you ever saw. I could talk with all of my neighbors. I could play with my friends. I could get a nickel from my mother and walk down to the neighborhood grocery and get a double cola and come back and drink it. I could swing all day. I could play in the hose. I could eat corn on the cob. I could eat the good food my mother cooked. It was paradise. I got, the, you know, when I was born, 1937, what was about to happen when I was walking, riding around, or what was happening while I was riding around on my tricycle? It was in Europe. World War II, countries being ruined, burnt, bombed, millions dying, 20 million Russians dying, 6 million Jews dying. But it was, par I was in paradise. You had a paradise time in your life as well. But as I got a little bit older, we moved to another location. My mother had a grocery store. And I began hearing about my neighbors. And I had a neighbor who had come from Panama to live with his parents. He wanted to work at the hospital. He was at the hospital briefly, and then he left. He'd been stealing drugs from the hospital. I had another neighbor whose discount building, it wasn't doing too well, burned to the ground one night and we could see it from our house. I had another neighbor who was in a wheelchair, with a nice looking neighborhood, uh, <laughs> uh, in a wheelchair all the time because her boyfriend had locked her in the second story of a hotel and left her with no clothes. She had tied sheets together to get out and had fallen and broken her legs. Diagonally across from us, the father of the librarian had tried to kill himself with a shotgun. And the woman down the street, whose children I played with, would be crying when I went to their house. Because her husband was running around with other women. And I began to see, it, it's not that great, it's not that good. The world is not paradise. And then I began to see in my parents things I didn't like. 
I don't think that's the truth. I don't think that's what happened. I don't like it when you talk that way. I don't like the way you talk with other people. I, I began to see things, I think, oh. And then the inevitable happened. I discovered I was complicit in all that, that I too was not perfect, that sin was in me as well, that I had done things I was ashamed of. And suddenly I was out of paradise. I was east of Eden. I was in the real world, the fallen world of humanity. And I began to see it all around me. And we live in, in that world. Everything from that story on in the Bible is about how uh, humanity failed and fell uh, after that first beautiful moment uh, at the beginning in the story. To me, that's, the, that's an allegorical way, a metaphorical way of looking at it. You don't want to waste your time arguing with your grandchild who comes home and says, they say it's a myth. They say that story's a myth. They say that isn't right. And you don't want to cross your hands and say, I believe there was an Adam, I believe there was an Eve, and don't you believe what they're telling you in college. If it's not what the Bible says, it's wrong. I don't want you to do that. I want you to say, here, I want to tell you a way to look at that because it's your story. It's my story. You have become complicit in evil. I have become complicit in evil, but we've been saved by the grace of God. Uh, I, I want you to be able not to antagonize that kid who has learned a different, a different way, a, a scientific explanation for the time about how it all began. And by the way, if it began with a big bang, can you imagine a bigger bang than for God of the universe to say, let there be light? That would have been a bang, a big bang. Um, on two occasions, Paula Frisbee has asked in this class, what is original sin? And uh, she has a, an explanation, but I'm going to give mine first because it may be the same, and I don't want her to think I learned it from her. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a scholarly person, but that is one great book, The Nature and Destiny of Man by Reinhold Niebuhr. That is a great book. I recommend it to all of you. He is the one who has explained the best for me, my nature. He says, here you are, part animal. You have so much in common with animals. I have a lot in common with Penny. We like to eat my, my dog, 108-pound golden retriever. We like to eat. We like to sleep. We get, we get nervous when strangers come to the door. Um, we like affection. We like attention. There are all sorts of things that, are in com that I have in common with Penny. But the doctor has told me 13 years is about the tops for a golden retriever. Penny doesn't worry about that. Penny is not concerned about dying. She has no sense of what is coming. 
she doesn't have a, she has some sense of the past, but not a lot of sense of the past. On the other hand, I, because I am not just animal, I am spirit, I have a lot of sense about what's coming. I'm 81 going on 82. I know what's coming. I know approximately when it's coming. I, I have that, and I have a remembrance of things past, which I am, you know, the regrets. I wish I had, I wish I had, I wish I had all of that in my system. And Niebuhr says the tension that exists between the animal part of you and the spirit part of you leads to sin. <coughs> this morning in his sermon, Chris says, if you're fearful, you will want what? Power. You want power over somebody. You've got to show that you're significant. You've got to show that you're somebody. You've got to somehow <coughs> exert power over somebody. I had a friend whose husband said to her, where'd you get that red dress? You can't wear a red dress. Take that red dress back. I don't want my wife wearing a red dress. <laughs> I know another one who said, we're going on vacation at 10. Or, you, you be ready to leave at 10. So at 10 o'clock, she's trying to clear off the dishes on the table, trying to wash up the last dishes. And he says, it's 10 o'clock, leave the dishes. I could, it just take me a little while to wash the dishes. Leave the dishes. We're leaving at 10. Get in the car. That's exerting some sort of power that makes me feel back in my home. It ruins homes. It ruins parent-child relationships. That kind of need for control and for power. It ruins churches. It ruins cities. It ruins states. It ruins nations. It ruined a you know, it starts wars. That need for power, that need for control. We need Poland. We need Czechoslovakia. We need, we need all. Um, and, and that's one way uh, that anxiety leads us into sin. The other way is we hide. We hide the way Adam and Eve hid. You know, Eve wanted to be like God control person wants to be like God. Even Adam hid. Where do you hide? You hide in work. You worked so hard, so long, that you don't have time to think about the fact that you are finite and life ends. Do you spend your time exercising so you don't have to think about it? Obviously, I don't. <laughs> You spend your time eating or gorging or in addictions of one kind or another. So you don't have to think about it. You don't have to think about what's coming. You don't have to think about how finite you are, how little you are in this grand universe. You know, the Apollo astronauts gave us a picture of the world in 1969. And if you were 50 years older or older, you saw yourself in that picture. Where were you? I mean, that kind of thing drives people into hiding in one way or another. You hide in business, you hide in your work, you hide in 
Facebook, you hide, and on your telephone, you hide, you hide pornography, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, so you don't have to think. Is that what you were going to say, ma'am? <laughs> no, she wasn't going to say that. We're going to let her say what. Well, anyway, that's his explanation of sin. It's not the tension that causes it. It's what the tension leads us into. And, and his explanation is that sin is not necessary. It's just inevitable. It's not something you have to do. It's something you just will do. It's inevitable. It'll be the easy way. It'll be the, the way that makes you feel better. It'll go off in some direction. But it's not. It's like saying to a child, if you stand on that chair, you will fall. <coughs> and the child falls. It wasn't necessary. It was inevitable that the child was going to do that. He didn't have to, but he did. And that's, that's how Niebuhr explains sin, original sin. You refuse to bow to the God who made you. You refuse to empty yourself for him. You're going to do it your own way. What were you going to say? <laughs> what are you going to say original sin was? I'm, I'm well, being caught off guard a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you can explain next week. I'm going to be back. Is that a threat or a <laughs> for, for me, Sandy, that somewhat explains it. Okay. I, I understand what you're saying, mm -hmm. um, but it, it's not enough. Not enough? No. And we'll talk. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm going to read you the best explanation I've heard of what the sin is. You've heard it before. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. You know that. Mm -hmm. I did it my way. And that's, the, that's wanting to be like God. Refusing to yield in your finiteness. Yield to God and find real life. You're going to find it in your own way and you end up writing Ecclesiastes. Let me read the end of here. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the word of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Um, that's it. That's, that was the sin. I want to be like God. I'm kneeling to him. Even in my finiteness. I refuse to bow to him. But that's it. And I either hide or I go for power. Well, I talked as fast as I could. I'm glad I threw away the pages I didn't want to <laughs> Next week we're going to talk about Job. Uh, considered one of the greatest literary masterpieces of the world. Whether people believe it or do not believe it, or know the Bible or don't know the Bible, the whole world recognizes it as one of the greatest masterpieces. And there's a good reason. And we're going to talk about that.
I have a funny story to tell you about the neighbors. So you know the, they're brothers, right? My, one of my teachers from, um, where is this recording? Let's turn this off. <laughs>